If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the program, UFO Warning. Today's topic, ET or DMT. That's correct, ET or DMT. And specifically, we're talking about alien abductions and just what these things might be. Are they all in a person's head or are they actually ETs? Now, there's been some different experts that have really weighed in on this over the years with different opinions. Uh, three people in particular that look at this thing as more of a spiritual connection would be somebody like uh, Jacques Vallée, uh, L.A. Missoula, and then John E. Mack. And John E. Mack, if you go to Wikipedia, you'll find out that he was born 1929, died September 27, 2004. Really a cool guy. He did the work with, uh, I believe, the Zimbabwe kids that had that mass sighting. And that's some scary stuff if you want to watch that sometime. Anyway, it says here that he was an American psychiatrist, writer, and professor, and the head of the Department of Psychology at Harvard University, medical school, rather. It says, in 1977, Mack won the Pulitzer Prize for his book, A Prince of Our Disorder, on T.E. Lawrence. A Prince of Our Disorder. It says, as head of the psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, Mack's clinical experience was in child psychology, adolescent psychology and the psychology of religion. He was also known as a leading researcher on the psychology of teenage suicide and drug addiction. And he later became a researcher in the psychology of alien abduction experiences. It goes on and says, Mac was born in New York City to an academic German-Jewish family. And I would just interject here, if you get a chance to go on YouTube and type in John Mac, and there's some, he does, his interview techniques I think are so perfect when he interviews his kids about the UFOs and stuff, this is really a heavyweight guy and a really smart guy, and he's just so empathetic. If you don't know about John Mack and you're interested in the field of UFOs and if you're interested in the field of ET abduction, you have to learn about John Mack. There's just no, there's no other way around it. His father, says historian Edward Clarence Mack, was a professor at CUNY, while his mother, Eleanor Libman Mack, died while John was an infant. After his mother died, his father remarried the economist Ruth P. Mack, though <clears throat> through which he had a half-sister, Mary Lee Ingbar, a pioneer of computer analysis who became a professor at Dartmouth College and University of Massachusetts Medical School. Growing up, his father would read the Bible to John and his sister, but as a work of culture or literature, Mack graduated from, but as a work of culture or literature, Mack graduated from Horseman Lincoln School, 1947. So you see, it looks like he's pretty much raised by um, parents that aren't particularly religious, but at least he did read the Bible to him. It says in 1947, in 1951, he received his medical degree, and then uh, 1955 from Harvard Medical School. Max subsequently interned at the Massachusetts General Hospital and trained as a psychiatrist at the Massachusetts Mental Health Center. In 1959, Mac joined the United States Air Force serving as a medic in Japan, where he rose to the rank of captain. In 1961, he returned from military service to Japan, continuing at the Massachusetts Mental Health Center and Boston Psychoanalytic Society 
Institute receiving certification in child and adult psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. From 1964, Mack returned to Harvard Medical School, becoming a full professor at Harvard in 1972. In 1977, he became the head of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, which position he occupied until his death in 2004. Mack published over 150 scientific articles and 11 books in his career. As department head at Harvard Medical Center, he worked primarily in the field of child and adolescent psychology. He worked on treating suicidal patients and published research on heroin addiction. The dominant theme of his life's work at Harvard had been the exploration of how one's perception of the world affects one's relationships. How one's perception of the world affects one's relationships. And you know, that's so important because our perception of the world pretty much affects everything about us. You know, whether we approach things from a, from an attitude of hope and faith or whether we approach things based on fear. We've seen that happen so much with this whole COVID thing. It just won't go away because, you know, a certain element of society, a large element of society, wants to be scared. They want to approach things in a negative way. That is their natural disposition, is to be negative, to be geared toward destruction. I think that's why it's so important to keep a positive attitude, when we can at least. He says he addressed this issue of worldview world on the individual level in his early clinical explorations of dreams, nightmares, and teen suicide, and a prince of our disorder. His, biograph his biographical study of the life of British officer T.E. Lawrence, for which he received the Pulitzer Prize for Biography in 1977. Now it goes on here and talks about his activism during uh, the Cold War. And then we get to the part about psychology of alien abduction and phenomena. It says, in, er in the early 1990s, Mack commenced a decade-plus psychological study of 200 men and women who reported recurrent alien encounter experiences. Now think about that first sentence. This is 1990. He gets a pretty decent sample size. That might be actually hard to do. A 200 people that you felt were fairly reliable witnesses. 200 people that had been abducted repeatedly. These are people who are abducted, who are abducted repeatedly. Or at least they believe so. So you see what he's done. He's created sample size, and now he's going to create a study. Such encounters had some limited attention from academic figures, R. Leo Sprinkle perhaps being the earliest in the 1960s. Mack, however, remains probably the most esteemed academic to have studied the subject. You see this? He went out, he talked to people, he listened to them, he really studied the subject. He didn't just write an article trying to debunk it. That's the difference between a real academic like Mr. Mack and so many of these other people that come along today that want to have, that, that want to present themselves as academics, but really are they? He initially suspected that such persons were suffering from mental illness, but when no obvious pathologies were present, in the persons he interviewed, his interest was picked. Now think about that. He's a psychiatrist, a doctor, medical doctor. So he, first he thought, well, a lot of folks think, well, they're mentally ill. Well, you know, if you've had loved ones like I have or family that maybe have struggled with mental illness, it's something that the average person can probably pick up on if you meet somebody who's got a serious mental illness. Now we're not trying to say anything to put those folks down. We're just saying that's just an illness like any illness. And if you met someone that had cancer and it was an end stage, you're probably going to recognize that. And he, 
he meets these people as a psychiatrist. He assumes, you know, that they're probably mentally ill because the stories they're telling are so far out there. But it says, but when no obvious pathologies were present. So that means he's interviewed these people. He's screened them for mental illness. He is a doctor. He's a psychiatrist, right? So shouldn't he be able to tell? Shouldn't he have a good clue if they're mentally ill or not? I mean, by definition, if a person's mentally ill, the illness to be to be, say, psychotic as opposed to neurotic, the illness has to be affecting their life to a certain magnitude where it's really interrupting their life. So these must be people with fairly normal lives. You can think about that a little bit. I mean, how mentally ill can a person be and still be able to maintain a household, say, maintain a job, do the normal things that we all try to do every day? So, when he says that, they, they, that he found them not to be mentally ill, I, you know, I, I have to pay attention to that. Following the encouragement from longtime friend Thomas Kuhn, who predicted that the subject might be controversial, but urged Mac to collect data and ignore prevailing materialistic, dualistic, and either-or analysis. Mac began concerted studies and interviews. Well, there you go. This is someone who's not just a binary thinker. He realizes that this that the answer may not be yes or no. It might be in between. It might be something totally different. It might be down a third, fourth, or fifth path. Who knows? So he's open-minded. He says, many of those he interviewed reported that their encounters had affected the way they regarded the world, including producing a heightened sense of spirituality and environmental concern. Now, this is something we see over and over again with these abductees. A lot of times, though, this is the thing. The environmental concern seems a little... I think it's almost an extrapolation of this whole spiritual thing. It's like they're trying to, you know, they're so concerned about the environment. The spirituality thing, a lot of these people say, yeah, we're spiritual, but it's in a generalized sense. So you have to stop and think about this. If What culture are you viewing this from? If you're viewing this from a Christian perspective, then your view is, well, the only safe spirituality would be Christianity. And if we wander off into these other notions of spirituality, we could end up in all kinds of dark places. Mack noted that what Mac noted that there was a worldwide history of visionary experiences, especially in pre-industrial societies. One example is the vision quest common to some Native American cultures. Only fairly recently, in Western cultural culture, notes Mac, have such visionary events been interpreted as aberrations or mental illness. Mac suggested that abduction accounts might best be considered as part of this larger tradition of visionary encounters. His interest in the spiritual or transformational aspects of people's alien encounters and his suggestion that the experience of alien contact itself may be more transcendental than physical in nature yet nonetheless real, and set him apart from his contemporaries, such as Bud Hawkins, who had advocated the physical reality of aliens. Now see, we're getting into this notion that aliens could be some type of interdimensional being. And I think that the deeper you get into the UFO phenomena, the more likely that it seems that at least part of that phenomena is that. That these things, these individuals, whatever, um, the way they appear... The way the shapes shift, the way their appearances are so personalized to people, the way that they are so out there, sometimes it's almost as if they are uh, 
some type of interdimensional experience, phenomena, whatever you want to call it, that's just crossing over to maybe just talk to that one person. I think about this uh, story that my cousin had told me about an old guy he'd worked with. He's long since dead now. Just an old curmudgeon, an old uh, mechanic or something. Anyway, not somebody that believed in any kind of spirituality. And they got talking uh, late one night, and he confided in him that he had seen a flying saucer land in his backyard, and that he literally could look out there and look in the windows of this craft and see uh, humanoids walking around people. He said they looked like people, but they weren't green, as I recall. Now, he said this is the last person on the planet that I would have thought would have had an experience like this. But this is the kind of experience that is so personalized that it almost seems like it has to be on an interdimensional or what some people, I think for a lack of a better word, would call spiritual. Now it says, investigated by Harvard for his work on alien abduction cases in May 1994, the dean of Harvard Medical School, Daniel C. Tostin, appointed a committee of peers to confidentially review Max's clinical care and clinical investigations of the people who had shared their alien encounters with him. Some of their cases were written of in Max's 1994 book, Abduction. Angela Hine wrote, It was the first time in Harvard's history that a tenured professor was subject to such an investigation. Now, you got to wonder about that. I mean, is this guy that scared of aliens, or is he really afraid that maybe John Mack had come across something here? That he had, he had created actual disclosure, not the imaginary fake disclosure that we constantly hear about in the news. Oh, the CIA is going to release that. Oh, the NSA is going to tell us that. They're going to blow it wide open, kids. Come here, they're going to show us. John Mack was doing real work. 25 years ago, he was giving you real disclosure. He was showing you the mechanics of these things. And it frightened, it frightened the overlords so much that they had to do a little debunking work here. Got some debunking work to do. The committee chairman was Arnold Bud Redman, MD, a professor of medicine and social medicine at Harvard Medical School, who served as editor of the New England Medicine Journal of Medicine. According to Daniel P. Sherman, one of Max's attorneys, the committee's draft report suggested to communicate in any way whatsoever to a person who has reported a closer encounter with an extraterrestrial life form at this experience might well have been real, is professionally irresponsible. Professionally irresponsible. And they base this opinion on what? They base this opinion on what? More fear-mongering. Okay? John Mack was doing real science. They were doing fear-mongering, narrative control. Upon the public revelation of the existence of the committee inadvertently revealed during the solicitation of witness for Max events, 10 months into the process, questions arose from the academic community, including Harvard professor of law Alan Dershowitz, regarding the validity of an investigation of a tenured professor who, is not, who was not suspected of ethics violations or professional misconduct, concluding the 14-month investigation. Harvard then issued a statement stating that Dean had reaffirmed Dr. Max's academic freedom to study what he wishes and to state his opinions without impediment. impediment. Concluding, Dr. Mack remains a member in good standing of the Harvard Faculty of Medicine. Mack was censored in the committee's report for what they believed were methodological errors, but Dean Tostin took no action based on the committee's assessment. He had received legal help from Roderick MacLeish and Daniel Sheehan, it says, of the Pentagon Papers. Wow. 
It says September 27, 2004, while in London, to lecture at a T.E. Lawrence Society-sponsored conference, Mac was killed by a drunken driver headed west on Tottering Lane. He was walking home alone after a dinner with friends when he was struck at 11.20 p.m. near the junction of Totters Lane and Longland Drive. He lost consciousness at the scene of the accident and was pronounced dead shortly thereafter. The driver, Raymond Chelwaksky, an IT manager, was arrested at the scene and later entered a plea guilty by careless driving while under the influence of alcohol. Max's family requested leniency for the suspect. Chelsawaski, in a letter to the, to the Wood Green Crown Court, Although this was a huge, tragic event for our family, the letter reads, we feel the accused's behavior was neither malicious nor intentional, and we have no ill will toward him since we learned of the circumstances of the collision. The driver, Ray Chelsawaski, served six months and was disqualified from driving for three years. What a tragic end to what a blessed life. Now, I brought this up about Mac because he brings up all this spiritual, what I would call interdimensional aspects of um, of these ET abductions. And there's some other stuff going on here that too that people have thought about. And this this comes from the notion that possibly these things are um, brought on by the same part of the body that that uh, controls uh, our feelings of our feelings of um, spirituality and this and that and exactly what they were getting at was that they thought that they could replicate they could actually replicate the whole uh, ET experience through the use of DMT. Now let me just take a second here to bring this article up. And this is one that I think, my opinion is, it's almost like they're uh, doing a, a roundabout way of, of uh, trying to uh, debunk something that they don't actually understand. Now the article comes from iflscience.com and the title says, People Seeing Strange Entities when taking DMT could be the source of alien abductions. It begins, it says, If the alien abductees are to be believed, there is a race of insectoid beings with a passion for anal exploration who should by now have a pretty solid grasp of the human bowel. Naturally, such cliched reports, of course, of close encounters, tend to be written off as hallucinatory nonsense, despite the fact that those making the claims often insist on their authenticity. So you can get the idea here that the article's written kind of, it's written with kind of a superior tone. You know, they've got the notion to debunk right off the, the bat. It says, famously found in the Amazon brew, Ayahuasca, DMT is an extremely potent psychoactive molecule that generates an intense yet short-lived trip when smoked. Intriguingly, it is also thought to be produced with the human brain although its function is not properly understood. One of the leading theories states that the brain releases DMT in order to protect neurons when oxygen levels become dangerously low, leading to suggestions that this cause stereotypically near-death experiences such as seeing a bright light or encountering spiritual beings. Some have even posited that alien abduction delusions may also stem from this mind-bending medicine. 
Now, this is a debunking theory that comes up over and over again in the near-death experiences, and, and also uh, with people that uh, deny the existence of an afterlife. And it's it's all it's the all-in-your-head theory. That's what I call it, the all-in-your-head theory. Now, Dr. Mack, you notice how he approached the subject. He gets 200 people, and he screens them for mental health and determines that they are, in fact, uh, don't have a mental illness, at least, it's not obvious, at least. And for his study, that's good enough. He gets these folks together, you know, they're not mentally ill, so he, he has a baseline he's working from, and then he talks to them about their their ET abduction experiences. And he begins to correlate some of the commonalities between these experiences. And from that, he's able to deduce that he believes these things are caused at some spiritual level. Or we could say some interdimensional level. At a level we don't understand, but it's able to communicate with us spiritually through our through our brain. Now this theory here, the it's an all-in-your-head theory, it wants to use um, some of the unknowns about the human brain some of the unknowns about brain chemistry to uh, create enough doubt to put a little fog in the air, if you will. So that if somebody says, wow, I had a near-death experience, or somebody says, wow, I had an ET abduction experience, it, was, it scared the living daylights out of me, they can say, well, this was a series of chemical reactions that occurred in your brain. We don't know how it happened. It's similar to uh, ingesting this particular drug, DMT, though. That's what we think. Well, you see the difference? John Mack was doing real science. These guys are speculating. It's okay to speculate, but let's just be honest about what we're doing. And if you see some of John Mack's work, he's such a down-to-earth, humble, super-intelligent guy compared to the people that write this stuff. You know, they spend the first paragraph with this sophomoric jibble just trying to make themselves, I mean, trying to make themselves seem more important than what they are, literally. Now, it goes on and says, to learn more about these strange apparitions, the authors conducted an interview online survey of 2,561 people who claimed to have encountered an entity while on DMT. Of those, 95% said they believed these entities to be conscious and intelligent, while three-quarters remained convicted, while three-quarters remained convinced that these things really exist even after the effects of the drug had worn off. As a consequence, 80% said this experience fundamentally altered their perception of reality. Well, I have to ask you something. Why are these people having common uh, delusions, common uh, hallucinations? Why are they all seeing the insectoid creatures? Like with the mushrooms that we talked about, why, why is it so common for people to see leprechauns? The clockwork elves that people talk about, why is it so, so common to see these little, I would call them demonic figures. Why do they keep showing up? And why do they get so angry when people talk about Jesus? It's all in your head. After collecting these trip reports, the team then examined other studios involving non-DMT users who have claimed to have been abducted by aliens or had a spiritual encounter. Their analysis revealed that DMT occasioned entity encounter experiences have many similarities to non-drug encounter experiences, such as those described in religious alien abduction and near-death contexts. For instance, two-thirds of the respondents reported receiving some sort of message or prediction about the future. 
something which is also commonly reported by alien abductees or people who claim to have had a religious experience. The nature of these messages varied greatly, with one person being informed by a DMT entity that they were going to die on June 27, 2067. Others, meanwhile, conversed with the DMT entities about more prosaic matters, including one respondent who described an encounter with a mystical being who was teaching me the rules and regulations of the NFL. So could alien abduction experiences be caused by the brain releasing its own DMT, resulting in meetings with these strange entities? The study's authors say authors can't say for sure. But the findings do at least open up this possibility. The truth is out there. Now, this is interesting, teaching them about the rules and regulations of NFL. This is what I'm talking about, this highly personalized experience. Makes it seem a lot more likely that it's spiritual, what we might call interdimensional, than a physical phenomena. And I think if you want to get into the subject a little bit deeper, you can go and look at some of L.A. Marzullo's work. He does a lot of good stuff. He's got a lot of good stuff out there. And he takes this kind of to a next level. Some people might agree with it. Some people might not agree with it. But, you know, when we start talking about these uh, experiences and finding so many common things in them, I think we have to be on the lookout for what's real and what's not real. In fact, you know, in some corners of the UFO community, people even think that it's a cool idea to use DMT or other psychedelic drugs to try to contact aliens. Myself, I think you're putting yourself at great risk doing this sort of thing because you don't know what you're messing with. But the thing I like about John Mack's work, like I said, it opens up a third way. For so many years, we had just thought that UFOs were either something on this planet or they were something from another planet, but either way, they were mechanical. John Mack came along and said, you know, it might not be that way. They might not be human. They might not be alien. It might be a third way. Let's take a look at this. And it's, that's, that's a lesson I draw out of this whole thing is that to be open-minded about stuff and to look for the third way sometimes because sometimes it's right in front of us. Until next time, this is UFO Warning, over and out.